This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Kerry Stairs, and I'm a partner at law firm Charles Russell Speechley's, where I lead our firm's responsible business programme. What that means on a day-to-day basis is that I get to work with stakeholders across our business to interrogate, understand, and strive to improve our social and environmental impact. I also work with our clients to learn more about the environmental, social and governance or ESG issues that are material to them and to ensure that we're providing them with the right advice and support, both in our traditional role as legal advisors and as collaborative business partners. I also get to spend time talking to our intermediaries and our wider networks to explore opportunities for thought leadership and collaboration in the complex and fast moving world of ESG. The conversations I have day to day are so rich in insights from our clients and intermediaries, many of whom are true sustainability leaders, that we decided to record and share them as a podcast series. The next episode in this sustainability leader series is a recent conversation I had with Colin LeDuc. Colin is a client of ours at Charles Russell Speech Lease, but some would say rather more importantly, is one of the founding partners of Generation Investment Management one of the world's leading sustainable investment funds. He made time to discuss all things sustainable investment with me, including why, in his view, the commercial case for taking a sustainable approach to business is definitively made, the pressing challenge of greenwashing and what is needed to tackle it, the increasing pressure on private companies to demonstrate strong ESG credentials, closing the expectation gap between private and publicly listed companies, and the future of ESG law and regulation, and why Colin believes that we will see governments and regulators ramp up ESG-related obligations on companies and investors in the coming years. Colin is a true global thought leader on sustainability and ESG, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. As always, if you have feedback or would like to connect on the topics covered in this podcast, please don't hesitate to contact me via the Charles Russell Speechley's website. Colin, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, you kindly agreed to give up some time to talk to us about all things sustainable business and sustainable investment. So let's let's jump right in. I'm going to start by asking you about the business case for sustainable investment. I expect you you spent most of your career in some way thinking or, or talking about that. Um, 2020 and 2021 has felt a lot like a tipping point. Um, we've seen enormous funds flows into ESG. Uh, investments, a 10% increase in Europe since 2015. We've seen outperformance of ESG funds and and an outperformance that has been generally sustained during COVID. And we're hearing more and more from institutional investors that they see strong ESG performance as representing better prospects for long-term returns. So with all of that in mind, you might say, look, the business case is is made. (laughs) We don't need to discuss it anymore. Let's let's move on. But in my day-to-day, I still come across a fair degree of scepticism. And I have been thinking about how I would characterize that scepticism. And I, I think it's a lingering perception that, that investing in doing business more sustainably, whether as a company or as an investor, is still at odds with pursuing good returns, in particular, perhaps for smaller companies that might have fewer or more stretched resources. And I think there's a persistent default ideology that the proper exercise of fiduciary duty whether that's by directors or trustees or others looking after people's money, requires a strict focus on financial metrics as a, as a priority. And I don't know whether you encounter that scepticism in your line of work still, but faced with that, how, how would you articulate the business case or the value proposition for sustainable business and investment? Yeah, sure. I, th- I think we're in a really interesting 
uh, point at the moment. I think the the case for using ESG to optimize risk and return, I think, is pretty much made. Um, and I think any kind of sensible investor is going to think about which companies are on the right side of history in terms of societal trends. And you know, if you think the world needs more clean energy or needs more healthy food or needs better ways of farming or needs electric mobility or all of these things, um, then you know, you're basically thinking about opportunities driven by the sustainability revolution that, that offer a lot of good um, sort of investment opportunity. I think there's also an increasing legal understanding, and you guys will know more about this than me, that fiduciary duty actually, um, you know, is about, you know, preserving the value of assets um, and enhancing those over the long term, and that ESG integration is absolutely aligned with that. And, you know, it is not in conflict at all, because in some ways, what I find is, is turning the question around is sort of I ask any skeptical voices that I come across is to help me understand why I should stay invested in the old way of doing things. Why should I stay invested in the internal combustion engine? Why should I stay invested in coal? I help me understand why that is a good investment over the long term when societal trends are all going in an opposite direction to those things because the world has understood that they're not sustainable. So yeah. the, the other thing I would say is that... Um, as you know, there are thousands of different types of investing strategies in the world. So how ESG impacts a specific strategy depends on the type of strategy. If you're doing an, an, an index, ESG integration looks very, very different to doing climate tech venture capital, for example. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's not a one size fits all. I think it's more of a world view. Um, so plenty of flavors of all this. And I think ESG investing or sustainable investing is just, it's becoming what it should be, which is, is just fully integrated as a set of more holistic considerations as to the quality of a business or the quality of a management team or the value of a security. So I think there are, there are much bigger issues, which maybe we'll come to, which is, um, is it all adding up in terms of societal impact? Um, yeah. You know, I, I think people are moving to that question much more than, being stuck on, is it good for risk and return optimization, right? Because I think understanding your stakeholders better, providing products that society really needs, operating your business for the long term, these things are just common sense ways of running good businesses. Uh, and so I think that case is, is really made. And I, I find that skeptics or laggards that are still unwilling to actually you know, understand and look at the real evidence of, of sustainability really working as a framework for business are just willingly being ignorant. Um, and, some, and that's driven by you know, a lot of things. A lot of people don't want to shift in this direction because their incumbent situation is dependent on the status quo being maintained. So you know, I think anybody who's vaguely sensible is moving in, the, in this direction and that case is made. Um, and I think from a fiduciary perspective, I think the next wave is actually, you know, should capital be allocated um, for explicit impact goals, not not just for explicit financial goals, but for explicit yeah. impact outcomes. And so moving uh, beyond the do no harm ethos into something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the bigger danger here is greenwashing everywhere. And uh, I think there's a lot of pushback on greenwashing now. There's there's a lot of 
the SEC, for example, here in the US has got a task force that's going to all the asset managers of the world to rid, rid the world of greenwashing. And all these net zero commitments that have been made and all of these things that are, that are out there, a lot of very difficult questions are being asked as to um, you know, what is the real world impact you are actually having with your business yeah. or your investment strategy? Yeah. And that's, that's the next decade of conversation is where's the impact? Um, rather than does ESG help you run your business better and manage your fund better? Because I think it's pretty clear that it does. Well, let's, I, I hope we've got time to come back to the topic of greenwashing in a little bit more detail later on. Before we get there, can we just talk a bit about, in practical terms, what does sustainable investment look like for generations? So you have around 36 billion in assets under management, I think, and I believe you invest in both public and in private equity. Um, you adopt an ESG integration approach. And I wonder for those listening to this who are not familiar with that term, could you clarify what you mean by that and perhaps say something about where it sits as an approach on the spectrum of approaches that you can take to sustainable investment? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so Generation is managing um, about 40 billion today across public and private equity. So 35 billion of that is in the public markets and 5 billion of that is in private markets. Um, and so Generation was founded on the principle of integrated sustainability research. And so it is all we do and it's all we'll ever do is sustainable investing. So we also believe in highly concentrated long only investing. So what that means is very high conviction, fundamental um, stock selection. So we are the opposite of an index. Yeah. Um, so what we do is appropriate to our strategy in the sense that uh, the way we integrate sustainability into our investment process is really about gaining as much conviction as we possibly can on the very best companies in the world and betting really big on those um, rather than investing in hundreds of companies where you need a very different type of research process. Um, so, you know, understand in that context that we're a concentrated fund manager, an active concentrated fund manager that believes in fundamental research. So we basically um, start off with um, a deep dive on what we think is happening in each sector with an explicit recognition of the environmental and social drivers alongside all of the traditional things that you would think. So if you're thinking about the future of the car industry, you know, we would obviously look at all of the CO2 implications of the next wave of of regulation or consumer preference or all of these things or technology. And then we'll, we would, so those are an integrated set of sustainability considerations um, as we assess what does a company do and how does it do it? So what is the product suite? Is it on the right side of history when it comes to the sustainability transition um, and the climate transition? And how does it do it? Does the company run itself properly for the long term? So how do the incentives work um, for, uh, how does the governance work? Like all of these types of things. And all of that essentially goes through the investment process, starting with these industry roadmaps, going into a company level assessment, which is really about the quality of a business and the quality of a management team. And we have a whole set of criteria around that, that some would deem traditional criteria in addition to ESG criteria such as are the incentives geared to the long-term performance of a business, yeah. um, other things like that. And then you get into the evaluation of the security, which is um, really also where we would express the conviction that we have developed um, through this very complete research that we're doing. So 
All we're doing is basically saying we need to understand everything we possibly can about this company. So why would we not open the aperture to understanding what yeah. environmental NGOs think about this or what stakeholders in the community think of this, this company? That just helps us have a better understanding of the company, right? And it's all just very common sense way of gaining conviction for on, on assets that we will then back for the long term in a very big way. And so that's what we mean by integrated sustainability research um, and as, it, as it pertains to stock selection uh, processes that we run in public equity and, and in private equity. And then you know, post ownership, so once we, we, we own stock either on the listed markets or the private markets, you know, we will then work through um, very deep and active constructive engagement with public companies to help them become more sustainable. Um, and also on the private side, we obviously have a lot more influence because you know, we'll own a lot more of the companies on the private side where we will you know, be a voice on boards to, to basically make sure that companies are progressing in the right direction in terms of how do they measure impact? How do they report impact? How do they build people processes focused on the long-term? You know, how do they do X, Y, Z on sustainability? How do they think about DEI? All of these different things. So um, it's a very, an integrated process. So I think, you know, maybe one interesting kind of anecdote from how we put generation together. First of all, the two main founders of generation are Al Gore and a guy called David Blood. So Al Gore is obviously a global leader in sustainability thinking, um, in particular around climate. Um, David Blood used to run as a management at Goldman's. And so you put finance skills on equal footing with sustainability skills. And we built an investment team that really was a reflection of both Al and David in terms, and we spent literally the first two years just doing research and the sustainability people who had come from as in as environmental economists or had come from, you know, very specialist fund managers um, together with a bunch of traditional finance people, we had to develop a common language around what we meant by good investing. And um, so you don't have a separate impact team. There's no separate sustainability team. There's no, it's not dis disaggregated from the core process. So the analysts have to learn the language. If they've come from Goldman's, they've got to learn the language of sustainability. And if they've come from the World Resource Institute, they have to learn the language of, of pure finance. So that the, gener the generation people are basically an amalgamation of both of those skill sets. And so, that is what integration means um, in, in, in a generation context. And of course, I understand that there are plenty of asset managers out there who are much, much bigger than us and who have you know, traditional models of how they operate and they need to sort of add on the impact side of the story. In a, They don't have the luxury, if you like, of building something from scratch, which of course uh, we were very fortunate to be able to have um, sort of 18 years ago now. Um, but more and more people are understanding the wisdom of integration as, as ESG just becomes permeated in everything that's, that's going on. And, but, you know, I, I fully recognize, of course, that, you know, yes, we, to your point at the beginning, yes, we are at a, at a tipping point. I would say we're probably at a, a peak of a, of a cycle in terms of people being aware of this. I think that the, the hard thing now is in the implementation and the yeah. execution. And so, you know, there's a brilliant article that came out recently by an institutional investor called the Trillion Dollar Fantasy, which was really about how, you know, you may have a trillion dollars being invested with, ES with an ESG lens, but 
you know, how much of that is greenwashing and maybe we'll come back to that. Um, yeah, right. Listen, let's um, stay a bit longer with um, what I am going to characterize as an expectation gap between public and private companies on ESG. Um, you could disagree with me that you know, that may not be the right way to describe it, but it, at risk of oversimplifying horribly, um, I think it's fair to say that historically privately owned companies have come in for less scrutiny on ESG issues than public companies, um, generally not required to disclose as much sustainability related information, and have generally been subject to less stakeholder pressure, whether that's coming from investors or, or consumers. And that expectation gap seems to be a serious problem because private business and private capital represents an increasingly large part of the global economy and will self-evidently be critical to achieving the world's environmental and social justice goals. Now, I think there are signs that this gap is closing. So the, the direction of travel on ESG regulation is clear. Um, more regulation, more mandatory disclosure, biting on more of the corporate ecosystem, including private companies, um, and more pressure from investors for private companies to disclose data on ESG issues, uh, including, for example, much more engagement from mainstream private equity firms. Looking, as, as you look at the whole of the private company ecosystem, from the, from the larger private companies through the SMEs and down to startups, what do you see coming for them on ESG? Where do you see the key, the key pressure points and risks? And on a more positive note, where, where are the key opportunities? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a very fundamental um, belief that, that, you know, a lot of people have, which is that companies that integrate sustainability will outperform in the long term. And so that is, that's not unique to public companies. That's also private companies. So um, I think the emphasis is often different between what a company does and how it does it. So in the public market, you typically have a lot of focus on the how. So you know, if you're Unilever or Amazon or something like that, it's less about kind of what are the products and services they're delivering to the world. And because they're so massive, it's more about the management processes uh, that, they're, that they have in place around those products and services. Whereas on the private side, they're much less, you know, mature businesses. But the, the emphasis is much more on is your product and service, you know, disruptive to the incumbent, you know, dirty, unsustainable model. And as a consequence, you know, you focus a lot more on product level impact work than you necessarily would at the at the large cap public equity level. And so that equation does shift between the what and the how a little bit. Um, the other thing I would say is, that as, as you rightly point out, you know, the market cap of the private equity world has just blown up in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And you also have a lot more visible private companies now. So, you know, not all the big brands are listed. So they therefore come under enormous consumer scrutiny, uh, rightfully, um, just as much as public companies would. So I think that then you also have, you know, co companies that want to go public at some point, they better have the best sustainability standards in place as they as they go into the public markets. So I think there it's an ine inevitability that the private companies will face deeper scrutiny. I think if you look at the TCFD reporting, for example, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, that is increasingly starting with a lot of the public companies, but it is increasingly looking at the private equity space as well. And you know, the EU taxonomy, for example, another you know very important uh, regulatory initiative to get get transparency on how green the economy is in Europe. Um, you know that that will also apply to private companies. So. Yeah. It is coming, and so a skill set with it. And you know, I think in some ways 
you know, recruitment is really where the rubber hits the road here as well. Um, I, you know, most really talented people, many, many times, maybe I'm just kind of in the echo chamber of this, but you know, <laughs> the, the best people that I've seen in the world, they don't want to go and work for an unsustainable business. And what I mean by that is a business that is not helping society or is not running itself well for its people and its stakeholders. Um, they want to go somewhere where they can have impact and um, positive impact on the world. And so the private company imperative is a competitive one to, to be more sustainable in terms of accessing talent, consumers, and capital, because uh, you know there's a lot of investors who really care about the sustainability of the businesses they're, they're investing in, and they won't, won't, won't back companies that are not on board with this stuff. So I think the, the cost of capital for unsustainable business is definitely going up. And uh, that applies to private as well as public companies. No. So, but you're right to say that there has historically been an expectation gap, but I do think it is closing quite quickly. It's also, it's also closing because a lot of the public market investors are now also private market investors. So, you know, the likes of T. Rowe Price or Fidelity or Legal in General, or, you know, these really big public equity assets, BlackRock, you know, they're all leaning into the private markets now. And they're saying, hey, listen, we're not going to compromise on our values and standards that we would apply in the public markets just because we're suddenly investing in a private company. There's, su there's such a perception gap. People think that this is, these are totally different worlds. They're not. They're just companies. It's just, these are just securities that happen to be listed in a different way or accessed in a different way. So the market has this impression that there's such a big difference between public and private companies. They're just companies in the real world. Right. And that's the thing. So, you know, expectations are, are actually probably closer than, than, than maybe people think they often are. Let's turn to the role of governments and the, the ESG regulatory tra trajectory, if I can put it like that, the surge of ESG related law and regulation that we've seen in recent years. Um, there's a stat from the FT um, reported in, in, in 2020 that since 2018, there had in that two-year period been more than 170 ESG-related regulatory measures globally, and that's more than in the previous six years combined. Now, that's an out-of-date stat, but it, it neatly illustrates uh, the, the movement, I think. And it, and it shows us that pretty much everywhere, lawmakers and industry regulators are taking a far more interventionist approach and, imp and imposing higher ESG standards on companies and investors. Um, how do you see the development of, of climate and broader ESG regulation over the next 10 years? Do you, do you think we're just seeing the very beginning of what intervention looks like from policymakers? And I, I guess I'm thinking in particular about the gap between where we are now on carbon emissions and where we need to be, where we need to get to over the next 10 years. It seems from the outside, it seems like a reasonably safe bet that we're going to see more and more regulatory intervention. But I wonder what your, what your view on that is. Yeah, I think it's, there's no doubt that it's a good time to be a lawyer. Um, so I think you're very well positioned um, because I think there is an inevitable policy response that is coming. And, uh, you know, I think COVID has been a very interesting dress rehearsal for climate. Um, you know, the, the level of government intervention that is possible, um, as reflected by what's happened with COVID, is what is coming with climate. And so... The, the realization, and this does tie back to the greenwashing point, by the way, the realization that the market, the free market, let's just call it that, is not, de not delivering on decarbonization goals at anywhere near the pace we need to deliver, um, 
is making governments very worried and that they need to be much more directionist in how they we operate as, as the market operates in getting to the decarbonization goals that we need to achieve. So just as a reminder, um, we are we are even the Paris Agreement doesn't get us to where we need to get to. Right, the Paris Agreement gets us to two to two point five degrees C temperature rise. Right, that is chaos. So we need to be at one point five degrees. Right. So we are currently on a trajectory of three to four degrees. So we need to take fifty percent of global emissions out of the system in the next eight years. That is not going to happen through incremental market adoption of ESG, and that has become clear to a lot of people now. So business does react very well to regulatory certainty. And um, the, the fact that there are increasing interventionist measures happening all over the world um, is reflective of the fact that governments are very, very worried. And um, that means emissions are still going up globally. We have, we have a window. Everyone's talking about net zero in 2050. What actually really matters is what we do in the next 10 years. That's what really matters, because we will have no chance of getting to net zero in 2050 if we don't get to 50% reduction by, by 2030. So that the window is closing for the carbon budget very, very quickly, every single day. And this is why people like my chairman Al Gore talk about the climate crisis in such acute terms, because people have not understood this yet. So that the, the likelihood of a disorderly transition is very, very high. It's going up every single day. And disorderly, I mean, very, you know, much more extreme weather events, which we just are witnessing all the time, every single day. Just need to look at the new Sky News program that's happening daily at 6.30 on primetime in the UK every day. It's called the Climate News Show. It's half an hour of climate chaos every single day, right? And they, they have it again at 9.30 p.m. I just love the fact they're doing that now. But so your disorderly transition is coming from extreme weather events and extreme regulatory intervention. And what that means is carbon pricing. It means banning stuff that is contributing to the destruction of our, our, our planet. So you know, banning the internal combustion engine, stopping the growth of coal-based um, generation in power, in power generation, stopping fossil fuel subsidies, stopping uh, single-use plastic, I could go on and on and on and on. And these things are, are coming. And um, you know, if you look, for example, at carbon pricing, something like 50% of the world's emissions are currently under a carbon price, right? There's not, of course, a global carbon price in place, and there probably will, never will be. But you know, localized pricing of externalities, emissions externalities in particular, are happening because people know that's a very good signal that they need to be sending the market. Now, it's not a high enough price yet to really change behavior, but this is coming. So I, I think that, you know, a lot of people talk about the inevitable policy response. Um, and I think that's happening at the localized level a lot more than at the global level. You know, we can talk about COP26 if you want in a minute, but, um, you know, I think people are trying to really move their economies now. This is real, you know, this is not just the a fantasy and um that that's what people are these extreme weather events are very visceral awakenings for people um you know be it floods in london or new york city or you know wildfires here in california where, I, where i'm based right it's it's happening everywhere there is no escape from climate no escape and um 
This is what the regulators are now focused on, is how do you systemically de-risk the world economy and the world from you know, the climate crisis? And you can't just rely on a bunch of company executives who put out nice press releases about their net zero commitments to deliver that decarbonization because they, they can't do it in time and at the scale, scale required. So we absolutely need government intervention and it is coming in, in our opinion. Well, I, I think that leads us neatly into the topic of greenwashing. Um, and you've mentioned some of the regulatory interventions that are targeted at greenwashing. So the EU taxonomy, for example, um, which will go some way um, to standardizing claims about sustainability and applying some, some rigor to that. You've mentioned uh, the TCFD reporting, which will require more companies to be explicit about their climate risk. You mentioned uh, the SEC task force, which is charged, will be charged with uh, investigating uh, misleading claims about sustainability. In your recent sustainability trends report, um, I'd say one of the consistent messages that comes through is this call for more rigor, more discipline in sustainability, more measures to tackle greenwashing. Um, what do you have in mind when you when you call for that? I mean, are you are you pleased to see those regulatory interventions uh, that I just mentioned? Are you optimistic about the effect that they'll have? And to what extent do you want to see more? And what might that look like? Yeah, so I think we definitely want a lot more um, authentic impact coming from the investment and the business community. Um, and so we, we've been calling for that for a long time. Um, I think that sustainability trends report is, is you know, another attempt to try and raise the bar on that. Um, the head of sustainable investing at BlackRock, or the former head of the sustainable investing at BlackRock, recently left and um, basically to claim that much of the ESG movement was just a fallacy um, in terms of you know, impact and that we needed to call that out because it was a dangerous fallacy because we're giving the impression to the world that we are solving these problems when we're not. Yeah. Um, we're, not going to achieve, we're not going to achieve a single SDG, Sustainable Development Goal by 2030. We're not. We're miles off on every single one of them, the 17. Um, so what I think um, people need to understand that in particular when it relates to climate, that the timely reduction of emissions in the next 10 years, as we've talked about, um, is, is the preeminent focus because there's a, there's a whole cascade effect from there. The other benefit of climate is that we have a unit of currency that people can understand, which is a ton of CO2, right? If you're looking to measure uh, biodiversity loss or you're looking to measure even poverty reduction, there's no accepted single unit of currency to track progress on those things. There's lots of other opinions on how to track biodiversity loss or poverty, yeah. but no one agrees on a single metric, whereas they do with climate. So what you can do as a regulator is you can say, okay, we all agree on what a ton of CO2 is. Now, there are there is different layers of quality to what a ton of CO2 looks like in terms of permanent removal. So let's just take the forests in California. They used to be a carbon sink. They are now a source of carbon in the world because they're burning down, right? The Amazon this year has just flipped from being a carbon source to being to a sink to being a source. Yeah. So permanence of impact is something that you will see coming through regulation. 
to focus in on things that genuinely decarbonize the economy in a permanent manner uh, or genuinely reduce emissions in a permanent manner. Because many of these um, things that look like solutions often are not the right solution. And so I think regulation is coming to increase the sophistication of understanding about what real authentic impact actually means. Yeah. And people just, people just assume that these things are good. And many, many of the times they are directionally correct, but a lot of capital is going into non-additional, non-permanent climate solutions. That does not help. So the regulator understands that and is beginning to focus in on what does authentic high quality impact mean at scale? Um, so th there's, you know, there's plenty of money, for example, going into uh, renewable energy investing in Europe or North America. That's not the problem. The problem is actually the impact gap in things like decarbonizing the steel industry or decarbonizing the shipping industry or decarbonizing the really hard stuff. Um, and you know, I think you'll see more and more regulatory intervention to make sure capital is flowing into those areas to give the businesses the capital they need to be able to make this transition in time. Um, so, yeah, and I think as well, you know, what you may see as well on the accounting side with SASB and GRI and all these different things, I think you're an IFRS, you know, you'll start to see all of that culminate into a much more standardized single format rather than having an alphabet suit that we currently have right now. Yeah, which um, which will be very warmly welcomed by, by business. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, we are running out of time, no quite, I mean the proliferation of standards is um, for anyone coming to this topic, um, let alone someone required to make a decision about how they report uh, and on what, I mean the, the proliferation of standards is a real, um, a real challenge uh, and, and we hear from many of our clients that the movement towards standardisation is, um, is, is very welcome. I want to try and squeeze in one, maybe two more questions um, if we have time. I want to ask about the rise of the S in ESG. Um, I think, again, it's an oversimplification, but, but reasonably fair to say that the S has had been a bit overlooked by investors and, and companies as compared with the E and the G. Um, and that's perhaps because social issues and impacts have been harder to conceptualize, uh, perhaps harder to measure. And, and perhaps part of it is that there is less of a global consensus on social priority. You know, what does good look like? What are we striving to achieve? Now, that seems to be changing fast. Um, COVID has been a real accelerator. I think it's uh, shone a really bright light uh, onto how companies, through the decisions that they make day to day, can have a very, very real impact on, on people, on society. And social issues seem to be rocketing up the, the sustainability priority list. Um, can you tell us how you're seeing the rise of the S manifest in your day to day, and, and what do you think is is really driving it? Yeah, so um, generation invest really around uh, in in theory across the whole kind of scope of the economy, but I would say thematically, there's probably three things that we really focus on: so planetary health, human health, and financial inclusion would would sort of permeate across the portfolios in different ways, um, but. This, this linkage between the human health and the financial inclusion bit, I think, is, is quite interesting. And, you know, if you, if you put that under the bucket of S in the ESG um, and you add on diversity, equality, equity, 
um, inclusion and all of those dimensions. Um, you're absolutely right to say that the cultural context is is incredibly important. You know what what is accepted as best practice in Japan is very different to what's accepted as best practice in you know, you know the United States when it comes to a whole series of social issues, right? So the cultural context is really key. Um, you know the second thing I would say is that you know that 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 idiosyncratic context becomes even more real when you get down to the company level. Um, so you know, materiality becomes an important factor. So what Generation does is we just look at the most material things across, you know, the whole ESG landscape for the future, for the long-term future and resilience of a business. Now, if that happens to be a social issue, then we will spend a lot of time researching that. But if it happens to be, you know, just purely greenhouse gas reductions, then we will focus. So, I think there's a minimum threshold for all of these things, just in terms of what is acceptable and good behavior. Um, but then if social license to operate becomes the critical factor, then you've got to really go deep on, on that as well. So um, yeah, I think those things, I think what we're seeing more and more as well is a, a deep understanding, even, even within the climate space that we're not going to get to net zero without uh, a, ju a just transition, right? So um, there is no way that we are gonna get, and this is manifesting in COP26. So this is a, a perfect example of this, where there's a lot of people quite concerned around COP26 in the sense that because of vaccine inequality, a lot of the developing world are not able to actually come to Glasgow to negotiate face-to-face -face with the privileged folks who have got vaccines, um, who will be in the room face-to-face -face for those negotiations. And that's a classic S issue in ESG, because it's, you're, you're that inequity is being expressed in vaccine inequity, which is leading to a knock-on effect around the inability to negotiate a global climate deal face-to-face -face because these developing economies are not able to show up, right? And so I think people are beginning to understand the interlinkages between um, you know, climate and social justice um, in, in a way that is really quite interesting. And I'm seeing more and more justice funds being raised or you know, DEI funds. I would just urge people to kind of get out of the tick box approach to ESG. You know, these topics are very, very deep. <laughs> they are focused on the materiality and understand that there's, you can't just tick box your way to a sustainable business. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people have social policies or DEI policies or whatever. And yes, there's a role for that. That's important, but don't let the tail wag the dog. You know, what's much more important is are you treating your people correctly? Are you treating your community correctly? Are you treating your customers correctly? And th those are the things that will determine the, the future of your business more than just having a kind of social policy. Final question. Um, what does a good COP26 look like? What, if we, we, when we come out the other side, um, what would lead you to say that that was a success? Well, if it looks more like Paris than versus Copenhagen, I think that would be a good outcome. I, we get a global agreement that ratchets up the ambition to a 1.5 degree world where governments um, around the world commit to emission reductions that put us on that 1.5 degree path, I think that would be Nirvana. Now, will that happen or not? I think there's plenty of people with lots of opinion on that. It's above my pay grade, but um, you know, I, I think we are underwriting our investments a generation to a base case that um, is essentially the Paris Agreement. Um, and anything above that 
which would still be an epic monumental achievement for humanity, right? But anything beyond that, like a Glasgow agreement would be icing on top. Um, you know, if you remember the Paris Agreement had five year um, periods after which the countries needed to present their and their nationally determined contributions that would basically ratchet up uh, commitments on emission reductions to to you know the appropriate levels of implied temperature rise, so to two degrees and then ultimately to one point five degrees. And so we need to see evidence of those commitments coming out at COP twenty six. So I sincerely hope it will be a success. I think because of COVID, there is there is a lot of you know this is this is going to be difficult. Um, so let's see. Perhaps we can perhaps we can touch base after COP twenty six and get, get your assessment of, of how it went. Thank you so much, Colin, for your time. Um, I'm sure everyone listening to this will have enjoyed it as much as I have. Thanks so much. Brilliant. Thanks, Kerry. Great questions. Enjoyed it. Thank you. This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.